0: A couple spins around the sun, and now it's time for episode number twenty-four of the Development Hell podcast. As always, we have your lovely host Chris Harches, grumpy programmer without the U on Twitter. On the other side is Ed Finkler, Funkatron with the U. Say hi to everybody, Ed.
1: Hello, Internet.
0: Before we get going, we must thank our awesome sponsors from Engine Yard, trailblazers of the platform as a service movement. It sounded awkward, and uh, and they did a really smart thing by hiring our friends Helgi, Eamon, David Collier, and a whole bunch of other people uh, from orchestra.io to give them a top-notch PHP sandbox within which you can run awesome PHP apps. So if you are interested in having your thing up in the cloud, and by the cloud we mean a server somewhere in a warehouse in Virginia, uh, check out... Um, Check out Engine Yard and Orchestra.io.
1: So it, on, are their servers actually are they hooked up to anything or are they just servers in a warehouse?
0: Well, I'm pretty sure they're part of Amazon's infrastructure, but you never know.
1: Just copy this take a zip disc.
0: <laughs> zip like, disc oh, I remember I You remember those zip discs? Copy it
1: over. Oh I got tons of those. In the click
0: of death that they would get at a certain yep. point Yeah.
1: just start, click, yep. click,
0: click, click, and that's it. You
1: knew you were done. Yeah, it was good times.
0: So uh twenty four, made it to uh two Twenty four 24 beers, twenty four gun salutes. Uh we're almost at a quarter century of episodes, it's pretty impressive. We've only been doing sure. we haven't been doing this for a year, which is even more impressive.
1: Uh yeah, I guess so.
0: Well, you're certainly amped up today. Huh?
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been a tough couple of days. So, uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, I don't know. You, you talk about whatever you want to talk about. All
0: right. So, uh, our guest on tonight's episode is uh, Matthew Turland, who you probably know online as Elazar. He's on IRC. Um, he's famous for doing the Fergie bot, IRC bot. And more importantly, he is someone who can verify what it actually is like to work with me. So, why don't you say hi to everybody, Matt?
2: What's up, internets?
0: So, yeah, so Matt was bugging me and saying, you know, what does a, you know, what does a brother have to do to get on the podcast? And I said, well, I shun, I said, I only want talented people on, so that's why I don't want Matt on. But I relented after a while and said, you know what? I think we actually have a topic that we could uh, go over since we both work at the same place at um, Cinecore. Um, so, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself before we get into our wonderful topics?
2: All right, uh, so I started working with PHP in two thousand two. Uh, I think four point oh six was the version de la jour back then. Uh, uh, I, was, I had been in development about a year before that, working in a .NET shop, and you know, went from classic ASP to PHP, and was like, "Oh my god, this is like freaking utopia by comparison." Um, Got a degree in computer science. I've spoken at a few conferences, written a few articles. Of course, as Chris pointed out, I've been working on Fargy since like pre two thousand um, eight. Gotten to the community about two thousand five or two thousand six. Just started figuring out what I was missing in terms of you know what I think is one of the better parts of uh, using PHP on a daily basis. Um, Found my way to Cinecor eventually through, you know, 10 years and about as many positions. And I've been there for uh, pretty close to three years now, which is damn near a personal best for me. Uh, I don't know, is there anything else in particular, guys, that I should be pointing out that's interesting about me? Oh, f- uh, I've written two books, or, well, co authored one, co authored another. Uh, web scraping is yes. kind of my thing. What? Yes? Talk about that. <laughs> Uh, so back, it was a few years ago now, uh, I wrote a book for PHP Academic Press on web scraping, um, that's been going around for a few years now. It's probably due for an update. Uh, about a year or so ago, I think now I got roped into, uh, a project with SitePoint, writing with, uh, Lauren Jane Mitchell and David Shafiq, uh, on their, uh, PHP master project, um, we just kind of took different parts of the book, but I wrote the chapters on testing and security, mainly because those are the things that we had to cover that nobody else wanted to write about. <laughs> um. So, uh, yeah, you know, uh, by the books, especially the first one, because, while well, I'm getting royalties off that one still. Although I think I need to take a book uh, page out of the book of Mr. Hart here and start self-publishing. It seems to be a very uh, lucrative avenue. But, uh
0: it's, so, it's helping. It's helping. It's helping me to make it rain in the VIP room. That's all I'm going to say.
2: Hell yes. Um. I mean, beyond that, you know, I've spoken at a couple of conferences: uh, PHP Tech, as uh, Confu last year, as uh, uh, ZenCon one year. Uh, I'm not really known for anything in particular, other than just web scraping and Fergie. I guess uh, those are kind of my claims to fame. Uh, I, I did a bit of ZF contributions back in the day as ZF one. Not so much in ZF two, although it looks, you know, nice. But uh so, yeah. I mean, just you know, another guy who people are asking me how'd you get on the A list. I'm like, I'm on the A list. What, what, what are you talking smack about? I've never heard
1: the A list before. Yeah, I mean, I just, it's because
0: it's uh, it's because it's members only, boys.
1: Oh my bad. Yeah, I do you have that members-only jacket?
0: <laughs> I do the nice red satin one. Yeah,
1: that'd be nice. Huh? I
0: finally fit in it now, that I'm, now I'm, that I'm not such a fatty. It actually fits me now. Because they said That's you can have one. They nice. said you can only have one size. It's uh, medium. So I'm like, well, I'm a three XL. Like, well, you better make it work, son.
1: So, so, so it, you fit horizontally, but not, still not vertically. Correct.
0: Yeah, so, right. so Matt, the the big question that everybody obviously wants to know is: uh, Am I really the raving lunatic and asshole to work with that I portray on Twitter?
2: <laughs> uh, mostly in chat. No, I'm kidding. Um, if you know Chris's personality, you, you kind of learn when to you know get his point and when not to take it overly personally. Uh, But no, he's, you know, in terms of, I think that the, it's good that he kind of came to Cinecore because I I can tell from working with them the past three years is that if, if, even if they don't get something right, you can tell that they're trying. And I think, I think Chris is good. And so far as he's been a good influence toward, you know, getting us toward best practices when we may have been kind of off the path. Um... You know he knows how to take he knows how to take criticism even though it kind of give a shit for it um, and vice versa but uh, no honestly he's you know I'd say he's he's a good person to work with he keeps your spirits up he you know gives you a smack upside the head when you need it um, and he, I think he's been good in keeping us on that you know principle of you know at least try to deliver a quality product even if you fail make a valiant
0: attempt. Say future employee of the year. I keep telling everybody this, but nobody listens.
1: <laughs> do you have one of those, uh, like those wooden plaques with names on it?
0: I don't know, Matt. Do they have one like that?
1: Uh, I
2: mean, you'll uh, you may get uh, awards at the company holiday party every year, but so far as I know, I haven't gotten one yet. If you're remote, you're kind of sight, out of sight, out of mind. Given the ratio of you know on-site people to remote people that they have now as it stands
0: yeah we have our big remota palooza uh coming up next week next week i'll be down in the buffalo offices matt's flying in and our other colleague who works remote um, darby who's down in uh, north carolina he'll be uh, coming in as well so get a chance right. to get a chance to see everybody and uh and then the company christmas party is on next friday
1: so you're making darby go up to buffalo
2: Darby actually was in Buffalo at one point. He uh, decided to relocate, and you know the company's been good about it's been it's been better about keeping people on who have been on site for a while versus someone who's completely new to the company, never worked for them. They don't know them from Adam. Wanting to ro- work remote, and that's right. that's something that we're kind of working on. I mean, it, it's understandable just because most of the people do live there, um, and it is harder to keep up the you know uh, the culture with having a lot of people on site and having a few people remote versus you know having everybody either be one or the other right but uh no i mean at the very least you know darby was in buffalo long enough that you know he's kind of i, mean, I think he still probably has a, a sort of local mentality in terms of you know if you asked him where's a good place to eat he'd probably be able to tell you
0: so, yeah, I mean, I, I will say that um, Cinecore has put a ton of work into making sure the remotes, that we basically get everything that we need in uh, order to uh, to get the job done. No, uh, no skimping on uh, communication channels and things like that, which is good.
2: Yeah, I think they've gotten kind of used to, at the very least, people who are local having to be remote for one reason or another, be it, you know, taking care of a sick kid or or the weather. Obviously, they get a good bit of that up there. Um so I mean, in, in terms of just the shirt company size, they're over 300, you know, in, in, in staff. So they've had to kind of adjust to using, you know, or Skype or email or Jabber or what have you.
0: So, uh, so one of the main reasons I decided to have to get Matt onto the show was to kind of talk about. There's a few issues that we that we that we see um, popping up at work all the time, and so it's the question of. Uh, Because, of course, we have our lovely little pirate pad and where we have some things down there. So one of the things is we talk about this. What happens when you can only hire really smart people? Like when you get to the point where your problems are such that you can only hire the smartest and the best people? Like let's take Google, for example. They have some really ridiculous problems they're trying to solve. And they're at the point where it may be kind of tough for a junior or intermediate or even an intermediate person um, to come in there uh, and work. And one of the things I see at, at Cinecore, and I've been there for three months, I'm, I'm almost past my, uh, 90 days. So I don't know, I I forget Matt, whether you're going to get that referral bonus for me making it through the 90 days. Um, if you do spend it well, Um, if you don't, well, that sucks. Um, and, um, it's made me wonder about what, you know, what sort of things you can do to, you know, make it easy to get, people working for you and get them making positive contributions as quickly as possible because cinecore uh, it is they're doing some really complex things i know this sounds like oh we're just talking talking awesome about our company because we work for them but they are doing some interesting things we're doing them at a very um high scale lots of traffic and there's lots of little bits and pieces that need to constantly talk to each other so so matt i know we talked about this Briefly, I think maybe yesterday or the day before at work. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on like, like, what do you see as are the keys to to getting new people, regardless of skill level, uh, making a quick contribution?
2: So typically, um, the company that uh, well, my experience was with Center core because this is this is actually the first big company that I've worked for where I was having to to interact with. Uh, other, you know, teams outside of my own fairly frequently um, is that, I mean, the company is kind of experiencing some growing pains and uh, it's good, it's a good thing that they're aware of that, that they're having to, you know, make a, con- a conscious effort to refine uh, how the company operates, how the teams interact to ensure that things stay, you know, relatively optimal. Um, a large part of that is that you have to get out of the habit of um like when you have a new person come on board they're basically a fresh set of eyes and ears you know they they're completely green they're untrained whatever you communicate to them to get them up to speed that should be something that you document it's a lot like you know uh you and I would say if you have to do something more than once automate it and that's that's basically um that's something that you you know you want you want to automate in the sense that you can give a new person something to, at the very least to refer to a resource, uh, a reference, a wiki page, a document, whatever to give them that information simply for the fact that you don't have to com- necessarily communicate it a second time. Um, whether in terms of just getting you know their initial setup or any sort of common task that your team has to, to perform on a regular basis. Um, I know that you know. You and I recently talked about our runways, where we, you know, we, uh, they're basically compartments for an individual project that may have their own CI environment, that may have their own uh, scheme in terms of getting things promoted past, te- you know, uh, quality assurance up to a point where they're stable and they can be pushed out to production. Um, there's a good bit of tribal knowledge that tends to accumulate when you have a team. So you need to be able to at the very least point new hires to that and say, you know, okay, this is something that you need to know. You know, he, here is where you can find out more about it rather than having to explain the same thing 20 times over. Um, that That's definitely been essential in my experience. Like one of, the, one of the very first things that they had me do when I got there was they had been developing an internal framework uh, at, because at the time they'd reviewed, I think – Zen Framework, Symfony, Solar, and uh, Cake, or maybe CodeIgniter. And they figured out, okay, these frameworks are all good, but there are things about them that would requ- probably require us to heavily customize them, so we're going to roll our own, which, that, you know, that's a controversial decision. But um, at any rate, the the problem was is that it wasn't very heavily documented. So a lot of people internally who were consuming that framework... Uh, didn't you know they didn't really have a, a resource other than the source to comb through to try to figure out how it worked, where to start from, in terms of you know the, the request lifecycle and how the framework operated and any of the utilities that it may have provided to get to a point where they had something that they could, that they could use in their own projects. So um, that, that you know, I find that that's probably the most important thing is just to give. The the new hires at a place to start to find out whatever it is that they need to know to get to a point where, you know, they're not having to essentially comfort the source. You can at the very least give them something where they hit the high points that they'll probably need to refer to and, you know, give them the essential knowledge that they need to operate. Um, Hopefully, I didn't ramble too long with that
1: answer. What do you think, Chris?
0: You're such an ass, Ed, really. (laughs) I love you guys. Um, love you too. This is a common problem. I mean, we we face this in a project that we're working on right now where we have a new tool, uh, a new service that we're having to integrate into uh, an existing code base. And all the knowledge of it is trapped up in the heads of two people. And so we have to constantly ask questions and find out, hey, how can we do this? How can we do that? Um, I know I, I was joking with my boss during my uh, weekly meeting with him that um if we really want people to write documentation, we have to punish them for not writing documentation, dock them money, dock them vacation time, just whatever, make their life miserable if they don't write useful documentation. Because that's really the key. When you come in, no matter what your skill level is, if you have a an unknown system to deal with that's beyond just one little tiny code base, and in Cinecore's case, uh, your average project may consist of having to pull in. Three, four, five repos, uh, Git repos, just to get you know to accomplish a particular task. So when you're faced with a situation like that, documentation that is relevant and helps you quickly get something done is a is a godsend. I mean, I feel that, like I said, I've been there almost three months, and just now I feel like I finally hit my stride, understand the systems enough that I can actually take a task and use all our internal tools to set up the tracking branches and the ticketing system and get work done and then push my changes to where they need to go and understand the review tool enough to use it to examine other people's changes and comment on things and just get it so that there's forward progress being made instead of constantly bugging Matt on back channel saying, how do I do this? How do I do that? I don't understand why this isn't working.
2: I completely agree. And honestly, it's like, like I say, it's, 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 It's largely habitual. When someone asks you a question, you should be writing that shit down because that indicates a failure on your part to include that particular concern in the documentation. Um, And every time that someone has to come to you with a question, that's an indication that the documentation is insufficient. You need to to beef it up. Um, Like recently, the, the, the project that Chris alluded to that we've been working on, Um, There there came a point where the architect had been moved off, and I basically, in order to onboard Chris and a few other people to try to get it to a point where it could be feasibly delivered at a certain date, I had to do a brain dump onto a wiki page to tell them, you know, these are the repos that we're working with. Uh, You know, here's where the runway is. Uh, Here's how you develop components against this service. You know, the things that really hadn't been documented before that were basically all in my brain, just, you know, based on my experiences working on the project, uh, that weren't really located anywhere else unless you knew exactly who to ask. So you know, that that's one of the more important aspects of, of documentation is just a simple bus factor is you know, if this person is not available or for whatever reason, you know, gets hit by a bus, literally, uh, that you know, you won't have that knowledge anymore. So um that's something, you know, like I said, that's a habit that you have to develop when you're developing a new project to get people on board. You have to be able to tell them, you know, simple things. And anytime that you have, you bring somebody new on board, you have to take that as a learning experience uh, as to how you're educating newcomers.
0: So, Ed, what's things like at the greatest startup ever? I mean, do they, uh, you guys have a lot of internal documentation that gets updated or are you guys just kind of winging it all the time? I'm curious. I'm not, I'm not trying to be facetious, but I'm kind of curious.
1: We pretty much wing it um uh, that's not 100 percent true but we have a wiki page uh on uh, or a, a private uh, one of our private repos on github has so we just use the wiki in there to store some stuff so there's definitely some there there's uh there's definitely data in there but i think that um one we should probably do more but at the same time, we are a much smaller organization than Cinicore is, and so I think as you get, a... I, I think we haven't quite hit that threshold where it's like, if we don't do that, it's just a constant disaster. We're still, we're we're kind of pushing it, but we're probably still at the, uh, at the acceptable edges where you can just use uh, oral tradition to kind of pass things on, um, and uh, so. There's, there's not it, because like on a given project you might have you really only have one to two developers, um, and that that uh, that I think makes it easier to uh, get away without documenting stuff. Uh, clearly, I mean, it's, so it's not the case that like, well, we have a you know an extensive framework that we keep pushing out and it's all customized and and like. 20 different people are having to work with it. It's not like that. So we have, I think there's sort of a threshold you get to where you really can't get away without doing it. And I don't think we've quite hit that threshold yet, but there's also a thing where I think some of it goes along with sort of, um, uh, being in a position where you feel like you can actually slow down a little bit and spend time to do that stuff. And some of that, a lot of that has to do with like, Economics, right? Uh, if you have the money to, like, if if you sort of stabilize a little bit, um, and you're not constantly rushing all the time, you can slow down a little bit and kind of do that stuff. Um, and maybe we're not quite at that point yet. Uh, so, yeah. What's the size of the uh, company you're working for at right at the moment? Uh, what we have thirteen or fourteen people.
2: Okay, and what's your? What would you say is your like annual? Uh, differential as far as people you hire, people
1: you may like may, may leave the company.
0: Well, nobody ever leaves the greatest startup ever. That's crazy okay. talk.
1: Well, that's another thing is we don't like those numbers don't make don't matter to us because it, we're so new and no one has left the company um, uh, so far. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, I, and and I I think that when you're in a position where like it's a regular thing where you have to bring people on board and you have to they, you know, and you have processes in place and you have to get them up to speed. uh, That stuff is really essential. I just think, you know, in our, in our organization, we're just not at that point yet. Um, But that doesn't mean it's invaluable. It probably means that we're a weird special case.
2: No, I mean, it's fair enough. I mean, I've worked with companies that size before it in, and certainly, like I say, Cinecore is the first company that I've worked for that's of this size. Uh, I think if I remember correctly, when I when they first brought me on, the company's uh, staff complement was two forty six. Now it's like I mean it's above three hundred. I think they've they've increased something like twenty eight percent within the past three years. So um, you know, obviously there's definitely a growth factor there. Which uh, to to listeners, if you haven't read it before, uh, Joel Spolsky offered a an article called uh, "A Little Less Conversation," and I think it's very relevant to companies that are growing to that extent that they need to be able to efficiently, you know, uh, be conscious of who's involved in the conversation, who they're having to pull in because that is time that's being expended when, you know, the company may not be quite as agile in getting something done because, you know, processes have been established, responsibilities have been designated. And you may have to go through two or three different teams to get something out to production, versus you know where you have a smaller company and
1: it's just you that you have to worry about. Right. Yeah. It's it's we're definitely at that stage right now. Uh, I mean, well, very, very, very early.
0: Yep. Hello. Yeah, sir. I had to just. Mute. What are you doing, Chris? Nothing. What? Dude,
1: nothing. I yeah, just... I heard, and I hear you rolling around in your chair too. That's
0: it's not me, very... man.
1: No, I know it was you. It was a few minutes ago, and you made a big noise, and it sounded like you pooped.
0: <laughs> and what if I did poop?
1: Well, that's okay. That's different. But I mean, if it's a you're just leaning back to your chair, then that's a problem.
0: Well, I'm trying not to move. I'm a fidgeter when I talk. Sorry. Man.
1: No, I know I am too. It's because you have that super mic.
0: That's probably what it is—the super mic. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I tried other stuff anyway, we're 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 verging <laughs> wildly from the purpose of this conversation. And plus I had to mute to tell my my wife and my daughter to shut the hell up because I could hear them all the way down in the basement.
2: Here's uh, help huh? my kids and my kids' wife's out, but yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah, pooping, thanks, Matt. So, uh and so the other thing I had down here was importance of tooling in Workflow since we're all about tools today. So one of the things that Cinecore is, I find is really good at is identifying parts of the development process that are error-prone, and then they have a whole bunch of people whose job it is to work on infrastructure. So they will go and then create tools uh, that then in turn make the developer's life easy. We have tools that allow you to start a ticket so you'll start working on a ticket, it will create the proper branch, you tell what repos you're gonna be working with, it takes care of setting all that up. Then when you're ready to when you're ready to share your changes with everybody else, it's another command, same thing. You tell it I'm ready to do the all this stuff. We have a command line um uh ticket review tool and um and then after you have that, we have automated systems for doing the continuous integration stuff. Matt mentioned the concept of a runway. Uh, in Cinecore language, a runway is just simply a continuous integration environment um, where we'll, we use P, we use um, uh, cruise control and therefore use PHP under control, and the same thing happens. People check things in, people merge stuff, uh, and all sorts of automated shit happens in the background to let you know uh, when something has broken. So. Uh, so, Matt, you've been at Synecor long enough to remember the battle days when a lot of these things didn't exist. So, can you kind of share what it was like, you know, how th- the reasons why some of these tools got created, and and how much of an impact that they had on the ability of the developers to to get shit done?
2: Sure. So, um, I would say that uh, I mean, in the days when I came, they were they had just they'd mostly gotten into using Git, they actually use CVS. So this gives you kind of an, a, a historical indication of, um, how committed the company was to adhering to best practices of the time. You know, they were, they were using a relatively old version control system. Um, but in terms of the, and I think this kind of shows part of the growing pains of the company is that the, we're still kind of trying to figure out, um, uh, best practices in terms of you know I, I I seriously doubt that in terms of the projects that we have that we're going to find a one size fits all but um, you know we may be able to find a you know three common sizes fit all type scenario. Uh, when I came here, we did have a central Jenkins uh, installation. Sorry, actually Hudson that was later migrated to Jenkins, but. um uh, more projects have been added to it since. It's, it's a continuous integration environment that runs our unit tests um, for all of our you know very core products. Uh, depending on what project you may be working on, it may have its own runway, which, as Chris mentioned in the case, we may be using something like PHP under control. Um, there's no really common practice. You, you just you simply get to a point where you may be saying to a team, do whatever you feel is necessary to adhere you know to be able to deliver the product on time but um there is something to be said for consistency where if you might have someone working on one team and you 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 notice that hey their talents complement this other team really well this other team is really understaffed you know let, let's say you know what you know are you okay with transferring to this other team um it, it speaks to how capable they will be of, of, of you know coming on board and, and, and acclimating themselves to that new position in terms of how consistent that the new position is with the old one in terms of practices. So, um, while there is something to be said for not being too communicative to people who may not need to be involved in a conversation, there's also something to be said in having teams communicate in terms of how they think they should operate to establish a common set of practices, so that you know you have that level of consistency and predictability between teams, practices, runways, processes, workflows, etc. Um, as, as Chris said, you know we do have continuous integration environments set up among a number a, n- a number of teams. Um, we do have tools set up to where we can start a ticket, we can push changes from a ticket, um, we can review uh, code on a ticket. We can merge a ticket. Um, And, I mean, even so, even to the point where we are now, there's still, uh, I think, there are areas where we can improve. Like, right now, um, if there are commits being merged to a repo that I'm an owner of, it's a little bit of a tedious process where I have to, okay, merge the ticket, make sure it has no merge conflicts, because... in my particular situation right now, my team has a, a good backlog built up so the code may be relatively aged. Um, but being able to merge that code, run unit tests to verify that it doesn't cause any failures, and then finally eventually push it to where it needs to go, that, you know, we're still trying to figure out areas where we can automate and uh, reduce, you know, the, the, the tedium and the amount of manual work that has to be done by a repo owner to make sure that, the, you know... St- Code is going out, which is obviously our ultimate goal.
0: Talking about office space in Buffalo, let's uh, let's talk about because uh, I'm looking forward to the PC load letter when I show up on Monday. Uh, <laughs> so let's so let's talk a bit about Fergie. When, um, for those that don't know, Fergie is basically it's an IRC bot written in PHP. So, Matt, why don't you talk a bit about Fergie, why you started what it's being used for, and, and what you're thinking of doing with it going forward.
2: Sure. So, originally, there was a bot in the PHP-C channel on the Net, Freedom Network. Um, AI was it was a decent bot. Um, the, the, the owner, as it were, CNB, uh, never got around to open source in the code just, you know, I mean, he's like the rest of us. He's got, you know, 10 million things going on at any given time. Um, but we basically, we had to rely on him to to make any changes that we wanted. So it's like, all right, well, you know, I, I have some time that I can invest. Let's get a bot out there that, you know, is open source, that the, the, the patrons of the channel can contribute back to. And so it, it, initially prototypes that I did were in Python, but... You know, it sort of made sense that in the end it was in THP simply for the fact that there was something that that any patron of that channel would probably know. Um, So that project started, uh, I know it was pre 2008, it was probably like 2007 or so um, that I, you know, I started writing source. It was a friggin' mess and a half. Trying to learn myself how to write programs that were, or scripts that were, you know, easily reusable, consumable understandable by other people, and so forth. Um, the project's been going on since then. We're currently working on version 3, um, kind of getting to a point where we have things like Travis CI, where we have you know tests that are being run against different versions of PHP, where we support Composer, where people can pull in our lower-level components to uh, parse IRC messages to generate them. Uh, to act as a very basic event-based client, and so forth, to make those available to other people who may want to, you know, write completely different implementations of a bot. For all I know, uh, I went to a, a, a PHP tech conference where you know someone recognized me, and went up, said hello, started a conversation. They had used the design, basic design of Fergie to write a bot that uh, performed in a, uh, a three-dimensional MMORPG to do you know various tasks so it it was interesting seeing someone using something that i had come up with in that particular way um i mean as far as right now we uh the latest thing that we're kind of toying with is a client implementation that's based on the react library which if you haven't checked that out yet i would highly recommend that you do so Igor um, Wedler, I believe, is the court. You know, the sort of lead developer on that project. That's got a few contributors. Um, it's sort of based around the idea of bringing a lot of the concepts that were focal to Node.js's popularity to PHP. Um, but we've, we've, we're currently working on a basic IRC client implementation where uh, someone could, you know, include the client simply listen for events and then be able to send uh, other events out to the server. Um, So that's kind of where the the project is now. Um, I mean, it's still, you know, the the version 2 is still being used in a number of channels on the FreeNode network. Uh, We still get the occasional pull requests. Um, I mean, it's really been my project to kind of learn about streams and you know, good design, um, designing something to where it's, it's easy for somebody else to pick up and they can easily contribute back to the project. That was kind of my focal goal from the beginning. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, if anyone's interested, by the way, there's, uh, we're under github.com slash That's kind of where all our projects are housed. Um, that's kind of where things are for the moment. Unless you guys had any other particular thoughts or questions,
0: oh, I just find it interesting that you could write a, a bot um, for IRC and PHP because PHP doesn't strike me as the uh, the typical choice for a language um, for doing you know essentially what is server side code or pseudo server side. I'm not quite sure how you would consider an IRC bot written usually. Usually, it's kind of written in a specific language. I know. I know for the baseball league that I'm in, we have a very simple bot that rolls dice for us. That's super simple, not complicated at all. It's just kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's probably not the the language that I would pick from a standpoint of, okay, this is what the language was designed for, or it's what's most capable of performing this task. Um, I'll admit to that. Uh, and maybe on principle, it's not necessarily a good thing. But I was my goal with the bot originally was to provide something that its users could contribute back to, and most of those users are going to know PHP. So whether PHP is the best language for the task or not, you know, it's not necessarily the the only consideration. It's that you know what what are people going to be most capable of using coming in knowing nothing else about the project uh how can i enable them to contribute back to it so like i say in this instance most of the channels that the bot occupies are uh focused on php in terms of their you know theme or what have you so even if PHP as a language didn't make the most sense from a technical standpoint, it made the most sense from a social standpoint.
0: Yeah, I can never underestimate the social component to these things. I mean, got to you got to write it in something that everyone else can understand, right? So I don't know. We've yeah. actually kind of we kind of burned through our list of things already. We're only like forty five minutes into the conversation, this is unprecedented. Jeez. It's unprecedented. And we may actually have to talk about some other stupid shit.
2: Oh. Well, we could, uh, uh, Chris. One topic that we could broach is uh, the company's move to service-oriented architecture. I don't think we've really kind of capitalized on that topic yet, necessarily.
1: I'd like to hear about that.
0: Oh, you're such a bad liar, Ed. No, I would. Well, okay. Let's see. The I have mixed feelings Not about really. the service <laughs> about the service-oriented architecture stuff because. uh Okay, well, Chris, uh, let me let me put it this way. I'm not happy with their choices of languages that they want to use for the server side of things. They're okay, using they're using two. Uh, 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 I'm talking, Matt. Be quiet. Sorry, there's uh, choosing Perl and Java is like you're only going to get like old dudes and people in house writing stuff for you.
1: You know we're old dudes, but...
0: No, no, like no older than us. Like people who remember when the world was black and white, and then when it was color, it was a really grainy color for a little bit. They're, those guys are all dead. No, I think some of them are going to end up writing services at Cinecore.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Dude, they're using Perl and Catalyst as their primary language and framework. So, no, I, I will agree with Chris that um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I would have picked the same language and framework. Uh, in terms of what we, you know, what was the de facto go to in terms of what language we may have based it on. Um, in the case of Java, it was, I think that was more a business decision where we had instances where we wanted to integrate with a product that was primarily Java, that just, it made more sense to build it on Java and Jersey for the simple fact that, okay, we, we may, you know, we may have to throw more hardware at it to make it scale, but in terms of, what it enabled us to do with the minimal amount of developer effort, it made more sense. Um Perl Catalyst, I, I admittedly do not understand at all in, in terms of a, you know people like who we can hire that can develop all these services. Um I, mean, I, I can say that I personally have not seen a rush a rest focal framework in PHP yet that I would recommend to any other person who wrote PHP. So, um, I mean, that that may have been a defining factor. I mean, yeah, they can probably find a lot more people who can write PHP, but in terms of architecting code that is maintainable and intuitive to the level that they can bring somebody on fairly easily and not spend for a freaking ever onboarding them, um, I don't know that Perl made a lot of sense, but I don't know
1: that PHP makes a lot of sense either. That's my two cents. So what when you have a service-oriented service, service oriented architecture, just tell me what the hell you mean by that? Is this You mentioned RESTful stuff, so uh, can you give me a, a real brief, broad overview of sort of how your stuff works?
2: Sure. So in the beginning, back when, um, our front-end layer does a lot of What we would, you know, a lot of the things that we'd want to abstract out to services, things like database calls or caching or, you know, getting various types of data, uh, things that may be associated with a particular user, uh, things that we may need to pull down and process from other services like uh, feeds from AP, for example, for news, Um, and being able to have a fairly lightweight front end. That consumes those services. Reason being that we're we're kind of branching out into being able to support mobile devices, as well as having you know your average user browsing to a portal style website from a desktop or a laptop. So. Um having those services and having them be easily consumable from both a you know, a browser consumed front end or a mobile device consumable front end uh becomes increasingly important. So um we're still kind of figuring out our way. I mean Rust is definitely a predominant uh architecture in terms of how we, we're organizing our code, but um I think I think we're still kind of figuring our way in terms of, say, having a client consume a JSON response versus um, having a a front end uh, contact a service and getting a fully markup rendered uh, response that they can easily present to the user. Um, uh, like I'll give an example: the Chris, the project that Chris and I are working on right now. Uh, we're consuming a service that is fairly comprehensive in the data that it provides, so you may have any, you know, any amount of metadata available about a particular news story in terms of you know, images or uh, sources that originally presented you the content of the story or what have you. Uh, we don't necessarily need all the data for what we're actually presenting to the user Um, And we had to keep in mind the amount of network traffic saturation that we may be introducing by trying to consume that service. So um, the decision that was made in the context of our project was to present an intermediary service that would consume this other one where we would limit the amount of data that we would return. Um, But the responsibility of the service is also to actually render out this data, um, in terms of very basic components like you know markup or uh, markup in terms of uh, looping over a set of data and replicating that markup in terms of that set of data, uh, things like that that would be you know easily cacheable would be easily configurable. Um, that's a big consider- consideration in terms of what we do is that any number of our clients for any. Individual component that we may put on a portal, uh, what they may have or need in terms of features, whether we you know we, we show this these links or we default to this particular view, um, or we point to this different site in terms of where the the original stories are coming from. Um, there's any level of configurability that we have to adhere to in terms of the components that we develop. So. Um, these are all things that need to be considered whenever we're developing new services or whether we're developing clients for those services internally.
0: Sure. Because one of the things, too, Ed, that you try to do with a service-oriented architecture is that you, you're – in many ways, you are trying to move functionality that used to be client-side um, – You know, a lot of stuff, a lot of manipulation of data and things, you want to move those away from the stuff. You want to move them as far away from the user as possible and get them on the server with the idea that you would start using tools that are better suited for doing that kind of work. And then in the end, uh, if you've set things up right, you set up a bunch of standards about how you want things to communicate with each other. And then eventually you get to the point where your choice of technology doesn't matter. You now have a standard way of, that everything needs to talk to each other, a standard way of making requests, a standard way of, of uh, sending responses back. And like Matt, told, Matt was talking about, one of the weird things on the project that we're on is that the service that we're using it's kind of doing things in a non-standard way, so that's causing some grinding of teeth and complaints from the developers working on it. Simply because it's like we want to move to a service. This is sort of a hybrid thing. I like the idea, but the implement but the implementation is kind of a mismatch compared to some of the other things that we're trying to do. So, so in many ways, if you PHP is kind of I think is well suited for a service oriented architecture because it allows PHP to continue to do what it's really good at which is being um, which being glue, right? If you treat PHP as glue, gluing services together, you will reduce the amount of PHP code that you have to write, and instead you can have people concentrating on doing the really hard work of the service, making sure the service is really responsive, adhering to standards, and just doing all the stuff that Matt talked about, because we have a large number of customers, all of whom have, who have specific needs and things that need to be done differently. So the services job is just to kind of serve up the, serve up the, the data for us. And then we can use the least amount of code possible to glue things together.
2: It also amounts for a certain level of scalability in terms of if we have a service that, you know, is, is getting a lot more traffic is, it needs a lot more resources. We can, we are able to, you know, internally develop that service and scale it out and have that be transparent to the consumers. So in terms of our overall overall architecture and uh, resource allocation, in terms of, you know, servers, CPU, hardware, whatever, um, it allows us to be more flexible and more adaptable, depending on, you know, what service may be getting more traffic.
0: Or dev. I saw a talk um, about this crazy, crazy um, micro service oriented architecture where this guy's name is fred george and he's been around for a super long time and he was talking about some of the various projects he worked on and the place he's working uh for now is the um, um the mail the newspaper in in the uk working for their online side of things and he's talking about they have this micro service architecture where it's all service they're all communicating via json they're writing most of their stuff in Ruby, but he says it doesn't really matter what they're writing it in, simply because these microservices are usually no more than a hundred to one hundred and twenty lines of code for everything. Uh, and to me, that's that's taken the taking the service oriented architecture um, to some really to to some extremes. That makes me wonder about how scalable is that? What kind of overhead do you have in message passing if you have instead of you be talking to one service now to get a particular task done, you may have to talk to three or four microservices.
2: That actually made a lot of sense to me just because, I mean, bear in mind for any level of services that you have, you can do something like throw a varnish in front of it and be able to cache responses. So uh, as an example, I know that the project that we're currently working on uh, it, it acts in terms of both sort of a data firewall and that it limits how much data we have to vetch and how often. Um, and also, you know, obviously presenting that data in terms of markup. So that could potentially be abstracted out into two more generic services. So, um, I, I you know, I can easily see services being able to s- sort of, you know, they're very general purpose. They, they spring up and die down like that. Um, they allow teams to be smaller. Uh, so, I mean that that architecture makes perfect sense to me, just in terms of you know how how little it would take to get a new a new service running, how little it would take to deprecate an existing service. Um, uh, so, I mean, yeah, it, it does make a lot of sense when you think about it, just in terms of you know resources and and being able to to scale of service and being able to bring new people on it makes sense in a lot of different contexts
0: some people though shitting bricks at the idea of of microservices because it's it's really about the way that he was describing it was kind of taking a lot of the planning and stuff away from the management and empowering the developers to just get all sorts of ridiculous stuff done simply because they're like, if you need a service that's only 100 lines, go ahead and write it. And if you need to rewrite it, you can just throw it out because it's so small that he says they didn't even need tons of testing getting done um, simply because the services were so small. The amount of code you had to look at was small enough that you should be able to spot any um, bugs. Of course, I disagree with that because he did say to me, oh, you're the testing guy. I says, yeah, you're going to hate my talk about doing this stuff. Um, so, I mean, it, it seems to me that that moving to a microservices-oriented uh, uh, microservice architecture, um, you'd be putting a lot of trust in the hands of the developers, which is good because I think developers um, do need to be trusted a lot more, but I can imagine why a lot of people would be like, there's no way they would let their developers do that. I can see both sides.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, a, a de- it's a very distinct shift in your paradigm of thinking. I mean, um it's, like, where you and I might have thought of a, a function as something that we abstracted logic out to, you know, five, ten years ago. Um, we're, we're moving to a service insofar as, you know, it can operate on its own processes, on its own hardware, on its own memory and CPU cycles. The results of it can be cached independently of anything else. Um you know, and, and it can easily be replaced with something else. It can be written in a completely different language. We can have a completely different team supporting the same service with the same API and a completely different, you know, and a completely different set of technologies. We can move from something like PHP and MySQL to Python and MongoDB. You know, and, and have it be completely transparent to the consumers. Um, it's just it. it That sort of architecture allows us to abstract very small amounts of functionality, you know, following sort of a Unix-like philosophy of do one thing and do it well, um, up to a separate unit that's to some degree is expendable, you know, that's easily resurrectable. It it allows companies as a whole, as large as they may be, to sort of turn on a dime, as it were.
0: Thing about uh, in meetings going forward at work, we should start planting that seed of uh, the microservice-oriented architecture, and see how long till. Uh, I wonder how many weeks it'll take for us to talk about it before we get told to shut the fuck up about it.
2: <laughs> well, speaking to back to uh, our the consequences of hiring really smart people. Part of the problem with that is that really smart people tend to be very opinionated, um, and a lot of times those opinions will conflict. So if you don't have uh, you know, a sort of process of resolution, or um, you know, a, a good uh, organizational hierarchy. If, if you do have one, um, there can be a lot of disparity in how things are implemented. It can present a lot of conflicts, a lot of problems in terms of how thing you know, how systems operate together. So, I mean, it's it, it does get to be difficult when y- you have. A group of people who are very intelligent but have very different ideas about how to do things and you really do need to have you know i, I guess some sort of a, a bdfl as it were as far as you know a final say in okay this is how things shall be for for the sake of consistency
1: yeah i'd say that's the case uh, i think that what go ahead why Brian. are you interrupting me you're interrupting me now yeah, I'd say it's like, – I mean, somebody's got to make decisions about stuff. Um, I think that the smartest people I've ever met are usually ones who are uh, uh, very – or at least, I don't know, what what does it mean to be smart? That's a whole other question. But I think the best um, developers I've run into have always been folks who have been very aware of uh, – the fact that other people were going to have to interact with their code so being able to understand it was really key and uh, I think um, I think that's a, that's a that's something that I I, I think is often times the case when, you, when you're writing something you don't think about that as much as you should um, and I think that's really important I think, I, I think when I'm really conscious of the fact that somebody else is going to have to work with this code and try to figure out how it works I usually it usually affects how I write stuff
2: it's definitely uh, something to watch out for in terms of like the architects that our company are great in terms of predicting the the higher level implications of the code that they're writing in terms of okay you know if we try to consume the service directly it's going to be way too much traffic over the network and it's going to really degrade performance versus. You know, an architect having to actually get their hands dirty and write code that's actually going to be used, and you know, at that scale, um, and be, be you know, being mindful of the quality of the code that they're writing. It, there's a large sort of degree of separation in terms of dealing with the the individual systems, like caching and database servers and, and whatnot, that a code will be running on, versus the code itself and how well it will perform in those environments. Um, and it, it's, it takes a lot to be conscious of that and to um, to be uh, effective in both environments, I think.
0: Our architects still do write code, and we also often have the pleasure of uh, doing code reviews for the code that the architects have done. So it's one of our few chances to get in there and uh, give them shit for doing something to punish them for other things that they made us do.
2: Yeah, it's, it's. I'm not an architect, but it's probably one of the reasons why Chris hates me.
0: <laughs> no, I don't hate you, bro. You've been my lifeline. I don't think I would have survived if I didn't know you. Um, I'd be way angrier at Cinecore, I think. Oh shit! Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs>
2: But no, I think it's like some of the pra- practices that we have in place in terms of like, like when we, okay, somebody will get us on a ticket, somebody will code it, it'll actually go through peer review from somebody generally on the same team or, you know, whoever might be sort of the, the authority as it were of the, the code that's being changed. Um, it, get, it gets put through quality assurance in our development environments. At that point, once they clear it, it gets pushed out to a staging server, it gets tested again to make sure that it works there, and then eventually gets pushed out to production. So, you know, we have a fairly regimented process. Uh, our, our particular team that Chris and I are under, you know, our unit tests are one of our, our de facto practices. Your stuff will not pass if it's not unit tested. Um, documentation is the point that we're still kind of working on, but I, I think that we've been relatively good as a team and even in general across teams in the company uh, of adhering to those sorts of practices and integrating them into our workflow Um, you know obviously we're still working on that but I'd say if nothing else we're finding why practices are best practices
1: (laughs) only the best practices are allowed here yeah pretty much
2: Chris, what's, what's, I was going to say, what's been your perspective as, as far as all that's concerned?
0: Well, I just felt – so the thing is I'm I'm not the type of guy who has a humongous memory. I tend to write lots of stuff down. Uh, so there was really for me uh, uh, a really overwhelming amount of information that I needed to learn just to get the – to get to the point where I could say, okay, I've been assigned a task and uh, uh, how am I actually going to go about doing this? The the kind of the the thing to understand is that my position within the group is not the same as Matt's. Matt actually, we're in a group that group has three teams. Matt is on the the homepage team, Uh, but I work for the group, not for a specific team. So my role is, kind of different the whole thing is supposed to be I'm there to help all the teams out get shit done so sometimes I will be working on I these days I am working a lot with the homepage team cuz they have this project that they got to get done and we're on target to get it done for the end of January but otherwise I kind of I'll spend some time on this I'll spend some time on other things so the fact that I'm kind of f- floating a bit and not assigned to one particular project also causes a little bit of a little bit of angst for me yeah i know i do have uh anxiety issues from time to time related to work i know people are shocked given the way i run my mouth all the time so um so i found it kind of overwhelming just to learn just to learn enough about how to actually go and do something which uh which makes me all the more impressed um, that when we get interns that get hired on full-time. Because given – I'm thinking, well, these interns are only here for – I don't know. What's the average length that an intern is with us before the decision is made to bring them on, Matt?
2: That's actually a question. I'm not sure. Uh, I do know that I think it's customary for us to bring them on over the summer just because they tend to be out of school for that length of period. And uh, in terms of you know – three months, roughly, is is probably – how long we have them before we're like, all right, you know, this person's good enough to bring on, or you know, they'll eventually move on. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's you know, we, I think it's interesting. I think because in terms of what what little I've seen of, of internship type programs, we don't have people working on on. Uh, you know, on, on low-hanging fruit, they are taking on real tasks that a real developer would take on if we had the time and the resources. Um, you know, typically tasks where, the, you know, it may be tedious, but they will learn a lot. Um and In the case of you and I, I'm, I'm kind of glad that we are planning on bringing uh, our, our teams intern on full-time just because it's been great when I've had tasks that I want to work on myself, that I want to get done just for the sheer fact that it'll make our lives easier, that I just do not have the, the cycles, the hours to put in that I can be like, all right, go do this. If you, if you need, you know, if you have questions come to me, but other than that, I'm going to leave you to do it. Uh, you know, I may toss out a few links and, uh, for resources or a few people to refer to, but I, I can generally trust that they'll be intelligent enough Having gone through our, you know, the hiring process or the intern screening process or what have you, that they'll get the job done. Um, So, you know, going back to our topic of, you know, the 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 problems inherent in hiring smart people, uh, I will agree that there are problems and that you can have, you know, certain growing pains associated with that. But at the same time. You can trust that you're dealing with relatively intelligent people and that are relatively reliable. They can get stuff done even if they're, you know, whether they're an intern or an architect. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's been, it's certainly been an interesting aspect of working at Senegor as, as they've sort of uh, more heavily integrated their internship program into uh, the majority of the company.
0: When they sent around an email uh, that they're going to be have that um, job shadowing thing going on where I guess they're going to bring college kids in so they can see what actually goes on. I was joking with my wife that I should ask them if they want to send some, some poor college student to drive up from Buffalo and go and come hang out in my office while I work for a day.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> see how remote people really get their work done.
2: I mean they honestly the company uh, i kind of wish they'd put the same level of effort into hiring remotely, but they have been very good about hiring locally in terms of you know going to job fairs going to colleges um you know sending their their own developers their own architects off to to you know sort of speak for the company um hiring interns so i mean you you can tell that they are trying to cultivate um Cultiv- you know cultivate their staff locally where they can I just you know like I say um the co- I'm not sure that the company's quite reached the point where they're they're as open to remote developers as they are to local people um and and I, to some degree I can kind of understand that I just you know uh, part of it is is just the the state of the economy that we're in where people can't necessarily afford to to relocate j- j- for the sake of a job so I mean in my case I was lucky because the, the the manager of the team that I was on was willing to take a chance on me based on my past credentials. Um, and now I'm on a team that might not have necessarily done the same thing right out the bat, but, um, but was willing to do to hire me or to receive me from a transfer based on, you know, that plus my previous experience with the company being, you know, capable of being remote for, you know, two years. Um, so and I know that they're kind of expanding out of, out of necessity to be able to do things like acquisitions or, you know, uh, capitalizing on a particular focus of talent in another area. Um, and, I mean, they have the infrastructure for it. Um, it, may, it may take some adjustment of the management thought, you know, as far as where their mindset is and being able to manage Teams that are hybrid, you know, remote people and local people, but um, I'm, I'm optimistic that over time we'll get to a point where you know that's not necessarily as 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 much of a challenge. Case
0: okay, so I'm. I guess I'm sort of remote because I'm close enough that I can come down on a regular basis. So um, in that respect, uh, it's I guess pseudo-remote is a good way to look at it, too. I'm down, I'm down there almost once a month anyway.
2: Yeah, it, it is something of a differentiator when they can physically put your hands on you or say, hey, drive in, versus me where I have to fly.
1: And I you know it's not really feasible for me for anything else. What's going on over there?
0: Nothing. I just dropped my penis pump. Keep going.
1: All right. Do they put their hands on you a lot?
0: No, they're actually very uh, hands off because uh, I think the only guy on our team who's remotely as big as me is our intern. So there's it, not a lot. Not a lot of threats of physical violence.
2: Does he work as, rem- as remote as often? I didn't know that.
0: Oh, Matt! No, no, he uh, Matt General. No, no, he's there in the office. But I just I've seen him there. They, it's funny. Everyone else has a has a cubicle, and then he's just stuck in a desk in a high traffic area. So people are walking by him all the time, and that sucks to be him.
2: That it's that's definitely another aspect of the the growing pains of the company, or just the physical space. Like right now, I know they're kind of looking for another space for our office to occupy and I mean you know you if you if you look enough at the corporate history of enough companies you'll you'll see instances where like Facebook or Google or what have you you know as they've moved on from different offices to accommodate the differences in, in staff complement um, it's just something you kind of have to be conscious of when you get to a point where you know do you want cubicles do you want open spaces do you do you need to be able to expand to another floor? Um, and and how how much tooling you're giving to your people to be able to communicate without having to walk across two floors to be able to find somebody?
0: Yeah. So when we're all there next week, I have no idea. I keep threatening my boss, and I'm going to come work in his office because he has a standing desk. I'll just throw his monitor on the ground, and I'll set my laptop up there, and we should be good to go. <laughs>
2: Yeah, Another one thing that they've kind of complained about, I mean, I can kind of appreciate the open workspaces in terms of team collaboration, but I know that the sound carrying across, you know, one part of a floor across teams has been kind of a concern in terms of
1: how distracting it is. Uh, but I mean, how loud do you get people get there? I mean, what are you, what are you doing? Are you screaming at each other? What's going on? Uh, no,
2: just sound. The the acoustics, man. Sound just carries. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you may have somebody two aisles down is having a conversation, and I mean, they're having it at a reasonable conversational level, but just the way the sound carries in the building, you may still be hearing it over you know the den of whatever conversation you're trying to have. Well, that's weird. It's annoying, and it's not something that you might necessarily predict in terms of an, a more open desk layout, but apparently it's
1: right. and it does happen. Though you have that to look forward to, Chris.
0: <laughs> That's okay. I'm already used to it from the few times I've been down there. The section the section where we are is usually pretty quiet, but it may it's going to get uh, it's going to get loud when all of us are sitting over there, especially if they have to they have to cram uh, me, Matt, and uh, the other remote guy, Darby, get three of us sharing like one little cubicle space. It should be very interesting.
2: One thing that I found that in terms of getting used to if you if you have more of an onsite team versus whether you're trying to hire remote people is is they're still trying to figure out or rather uh, cultivate the habit of. Remembering, oh hey, we may have remote people who need to to interact with whatever we're doing here, whether it's a meeting, uh, whether it's something that they need to conference call in for, or be able to see somebody else's screen for. Uh, being able to have those accommodations where you know they might only arrange for them if they know that you know, one of the remote people is gonna be at a conference or is gonna be sick or is just gonna be out for whatever reason versus whether they have somebody who is always remote that they need to account for versus, you know, the majority of people who are maybe attending any given meeting who are on site. Um it's it's a challenge and it's something that you know, if you're a remote person you're kind of out of sight, out of mind unless somebody's hearing from you on a regular basis. So um, it's it's something that especially management has to keep in mind just because you know culture comes from top down so if you know if management is telling them you know take it to chat so that the broma people aren't missing out on this conversation that they need to hear um you, you know you may there are conversations that you may never hear i mean there there are still things that I'm the last to hear about in terms of people transferring or people leaving the company or you know things of that nature that you, you tend to hear more around the water cooler type conversations that you may not necessarily hear if you're remote until the last minute.
1: Yes, those are kind of the bane of working remote. Uh, it's that idea that you sort of have to have conversations in certain ways because otherwise not everybody knows what's going on. Yep. Yeah.
0: Aren't all you guys, you guys are all remote, right, at, at the, the Greatest Startup Ever?
1: Yeah, basically, um, yes.
0: Although you do have a cluster of a few people who are um, in the same office together, right? That Chris Shiflett and uh, some of the other guys who got on board from Analog and when they joined up with you, those guys are still working together in the same office or were they, re- or were they all remote before too?
1: Well, they were kind of spread out already, although they were kind of spread out between a couple different places. Uh, but um, there's a little bit, but relatively speaking, like, uh, not so much. Um, we, uh, uh, we're we pretty much all spread out. Um, sometimes people get together, so you might have two or three in the same place, but it's... Uh, uh, but the other thing is that um, it's not like you have a team who's working on one project all in the same place. That is definitely not the case. <laughs> so uh, we will. So that that would be one thing that might make things a little bit easier. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I would say easier. But uh, we do not have that situation.
2: It was it was definitely easier when I was working with Group Labula back a few years ago when you know we only had a small handful of people but we were all remote and all disparate locations so you know it was something that we were adjusted to whereas you know this is a company that's on you know mostly on site that's having to integrate remote people into their workflow a the
1: hybrid team is just a lot harder to keep up. Yes, it is. Yes, yes, it is.
0: Nice save there, Ed.
1: <laughs> I was looking at this guy. I knew he wasn't going to do it. So, uh, <laughs> I was, sorry, about,
2: I, was about to say, I mean, Chris, Chris, what have your experience has been as far as working? I mean, have you done a lot of remote working?
0: Uh, yeah, I've spent the last six years working remote. Um, so the ones where everybody is remote, uh, like the fictive kin scenario, um, communication is usually not a problem because everybody – works harder to communicate because they know the channels are limited. The worst the worst scenario is the ones where really small numbers of people on the team are remote and the company itself is going through the motions, they're doing a half-assed job of, of the commitment to remote. Um, where s- stuff like, you know, se- it's only senior people that can be remote and, and just, just weird arbitrary rules um, put in place that are, that all they really do is they create a divide between the people who are located on site and the people who happen to be working remotely. For me, the key has always been if you make everybody use the same communication channel to talk, Whatever channel that you choose, when everybody uses it, then the remote people benefit way more. If people can still do the drive-by meetings and the one-off conversations, come over to my cubicle and talk to me, then I really think that everybody kind of misses out on that.
2: I agree. And I think the 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 tool chain is definitely a necessity, but it's it's mainly the mindset. Like, I mean, I've seen – you know, an office, they also are two offices within an hour of each other. one of them uh, shrinking in staff complement and eventually getting to a point where it was just one person working remotely. And it's just it's a matter of communication of the other office as to whether or not you feel like you're completely insulated or alone or you know whether you feel like you're remote and not really hearing whatever conversations may be going on. Uh, just by how much people communicate with you, so it, it's just—I think it's a largely a mindset in terms of oh, there are people that need to hear what's going on, or need, you know, need to be aware that you know that we're we're mindful of them, we remember them, we want to include them in terms of how included included you feel in the community that you're working for.
0: Yeah, no, I again, I tell people this all the time. Cinecore has done an awesome job of making sure that. Because our, um, our team does have quite a few remote people on it compared to other teams, so they've done a really good job of making sure that we're included in everything there's always dial in numbers and screen shares for every meeting um, you know all the important conversations really do happen via um, our jabber servers and what doesn't happen is um, what, d- what does happen in person is usually uh, summarized and sent out in an email so that, again, nobody feels left out that everybody is, is everybody's being notified of what's going on. Because that's really the key. Once you get this, once you create that divide between the remote people and the inside people, then you kind of end up having what happened where I worked before, where within six months, basically, all the remote people had bailed because the company wasn't making the commitment to really treat the remote people as part of the team. It happens. I agree. So, Mr. Finkler, anything you wanted to talk about before before I get on to the whorebaggery part of the podcast?
1: No, let's get right to the whore baggery.
0: All right. So, being a self-promoting person that I am, um, earlier this week I launched my new little venture that I'm doing, thereby further uh, expanding the Grumpy brand and my plans for world domination. Where I launched my uh, Grumpy Learning website, so Grumpy learningcom where that eventually that will be the home for my books, and also I'm launching uh, an in-person, well, in-person via online um, course. Uh, PHP testing boot camp, three sessions, uh, 90 to 120 minutes every time where I'm going to show you how somebody who actually knows what they're doing about programming and testing, how they actually how to make test centric development work and to to show you how to take code and massage it and uh, make it do all the things that you need to do and also to make it testable. So um, space is limited. There's nine tickets. Three are already sold. Classes start. Right in the new year, um, January 4th, 250 bucks to be in the live sessions. If you can't make the live ones, but you want all the recordings of the lessons, that's 125 bucks.:
1: So that sounds pretty exciting.
0: Uh, I am looking forward to it because this will be basically I, – I did the same thing um, early in the fall here in Toronto up at uh, the campus of York University. There were six of us, and I basically did the same thing, went over the basics of building testable code. We went through the awesome um, FizzBuzz example, doing a test-driven development style. And then we actually went on and took some real code and and refactored it and wrote tests, and I explained how that worked. And we got into using things like um, Behat and and Mink to drive a browser and stuff like that. So I'm going to be doing um, something very, very similar, uh, except just an online format with people. Because, um, you know, I, I I really enjoy teaching people about this stuff, and it's just hard to find a... Uh, hard to find a format that I can reach the widest um, audience and still um, be able to focus enough attention that if individuals are having problems, um, I can stop the class to help them out. Nice. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And between that and working on my PHP unit cookbook, um, I'm basically all booked up until um, until March. Almost all my time is accounted for, which is kind of scary.
1: Yeah, look at the big brain on Brad. Check out the big brain
0: stuff. on Brad. You want some <laughs> motherfucker? So yeah, we're ending we're uh, ending this on a bit of a whimper. Anything else, uh, <laughs> kind of, Hey, you know what? We never talked about code connects. Maybe we should save that for the next um, the next podcast.
1: Yeah, well, I should totally do that. Uh, this wasn't a good week because I'm totally out of it, but um, which you may be told by my massive participation, but. Um, yeah, uh, we should totally talk about Cook Connects. I think it would be a cool thing to do. Awesome.
2: That was the uh, the conference that was arranging for uh, childcare on site, huh? You got it. Relatively revolutionary concept, but uh, applies to all three of the people talking here. So I'd figure, you know, it'd be a pretty big deal.
1: Yeah, yeah. Although I did not take advantage of it, I just stuck my uh, better half with that.
0: Yeah, man, that's what I do too. Come on, you got to get with the program.
1: Yeah,
2: it was well, well, fair enough. But I mean, it's, it's still, I mean, you know it's it's been something that i've been kind of talking about for a while that i kind of like to get her around people that i interact with just to get her to kind of put her head in you know the mindset that when i go to a conference it's not just it's part learning experience It's a little bit of fun and games but mainly just you know interacting with the same people that i interact with and kind of getting that sort of perspective into how i think i guess right. uh, not just you know sticking here with the kids and being gone for a week
1: well that's what we like to tell them yes <laughs> drinking no we don't do that not at all uh, not at all no
0: of course not all right i think we've reached the end so once again, this has been episode number 24, 2, four, two four beer. I wish I could have a 2-4 beer right about now after talking about all this stuff, just to yes. make myself blotto so I can go to sleep. So this has been episode 24 of uh, the Development Hill podcast. You can find us uh, online at devhell.info, where you can find all our episodes uh, all the way back uh, to the beginning. Um, Oh, my screen just died on the air. Hold on. There we go. Um, oh, my God. Yes, I know. I got distracted. I had the lights off, and the and the, um, and my monitor went blank, and I got distracted for a second. So Yes, yeah, so uh, you can find us on – you can find all our episodes there along with uh, – usually Ed does the post-up. They're always very witty and entertaining. You can also find us on iTunes. Please, 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 please rate us on iTunes. Let us know what you think. Um, you can find uh, we're um, dev underscore hell on twitter you can find me on twitter grumpy programmer without the u you can find ed on twitter uh, funkatron with the u uh, thanks so much matt for coming on it was a, a, a good chance to talk to you outside of the confines of work for once my pleasure and uh, thank you to everybody that's been uh, watching our comedy routine going on in irc uh, so uh, we'll see you guys all next time
1: Good night, internet thank you.